This episode of the Windows Into the Bible podcast is brought to you by Windows Into the Bible University, the best way for you to continue studying and learning about the words of the Bible through the world of the Bible. With affordable monthly and annual membership plans, in addition to some incredible free courses and materials, Windows Into the Bible University is a resource like nothing that's out there. Courses are available online, on demand, with video and audio lessons, so there's no such thing as falling behind. You decide the pace you learn at, and we provide you with everything you need to study your Bible like never before. Some of our most popular courses include What is the Bible? Windows into the Bible, the theology of Jesus, and much more. These courses are expert-led with college-level learning and materials at a fraction of the college cost. We guarantee you'll never look at the Bible the same again. Enroll today at WITBUniversity.com. That's WITBUniversity.com. Listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. Hi, I'm Mark. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you feel like you're missing things that the author intended for you to understand? Would you like to gain clarity and confidence in reading the Bible? Welcome to the Windows into the Bible podcast, where we use the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Archie Wright. Archie was born in Prestwick, Scotland, but moved to the U.S. at the age of seven. He grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania. He has two children, Isabella, age 12, and Zachary, age 10, and they reside in Norfolk, Virginia. He completed his undergraduate master studies at Oral Roberts University and completed his PhD at Durham University in England in early Judaism and Christian origins. His dissertation was published by Moore Seebeck titled The Origin of Evil Spirits, which has been published as a revised edition by Fortress Press in 2015. He has also co-published a volume with Dr. Kevin Spawn titled Spirit and Scripture, Exploring a Pneumatic Hermeneutic with T.N.T. Clark in 2012. A two-volume early Jewish literature and anthology was published in 2018 with Erdman's. He has just completed a monograph entitled Satan and the Problem of Evil from Jewish Scriptures through the Early Church Fathers, forthcoming with Fortress Press in 2021. In addition, he is co-editing a volume, The Spirit Says, Inspiration and Interpretation in Ancient Jewish and Christian Texts, forthcoming with De Gruyter in 2021. 
He serves as the general editor to the forthcoming series, The New Testament in its Second Temple Context, which will be published by Cascade over the next eight to 10 years, with the introductory volume to appear in 2022. He serves as the executive director of the Catholic Biblical Association of America. He serves on the board of directors of the Enoch Seminar and serves on the editorial review board of the Journal of the Study of Pseudepigrapha. Archie, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Mark, thank you very much. It's it's uh, an honor to be here. Um, looking forward to our conversation, and thank you for that <laughs> introduction. Well, to say you're prolific would uh, would would be a bit of an understatement. But why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to us and. Beyond all the the publishing and 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 so forth, what got you interested in the study of ancient Judaism and, and Christian origins? Well, I, my guess is it probably started when I l- moved to Israel in the early '90s to work there in construction management. And you know, when you live in Israel for three and a half years and you're in the midst of that culture and all the Bible setting and so forth talking to people, talking to Jewish scholars there. There's just something got into my blood, I suppose. And uh, I just wanted to learn more and more about, you know, the early Jewish Second Temple period mainly is what interests me the most. And then how that helps us understand the New Testament and, of course, early Christianity as well. So that's that was the main thing. And then I... Uh, when I went to Oral Roberts, I met some people there that that was their their main focus was on Christian origins and early Jewish literature. So that just kind of you know fanned the flame some more, and then uh, it just got to be more and more of a desire to just deepen my understanding of how to read the New Testament in particular with a Jewish lens, through a Jewish lens that Jesus would have been looking at or looking through or part of, or the whole early church would have been part of. So I think it's really important to have that lens to look through in order to properly understand the teachings of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and also being in the land of Israel and understanding, you know, all the geographical, archaeological issues that are going on there that play into the the reading of the New Testament as well. So okay. Well, from looking over, you know, the just the list of publications that I read and I know you've written and had more published than that, it seems like a lot of your work has focused on Satan angelic figures and as they say the devil's in the details so i mean (laughs) um but what what's drawn you to this slice of study within the world of ancient judaism focusing on these angelic figures satan um the origin of evil things like that what's been the pull there for you well the pull has been i don't know when i was a Oral Roberts, uh, uh, you know, looking at the world around us and the problem of evil, you know, mm-hmm. why why is there evil in the world and how did it get here and why doesn't God do something about it just to completely eliminate it? You know, we know he has that ability, but um, 
that was the main draw that started me down this path. Um, and I think the the major influence became Lawrence Stuckenbrook at, at Durham. Uh, mm-hmm. This was one of his major areas of study, as, as you know. And he just, you know, we started a conversation back in 1999 by email and just kind of back and forth. And uh, he talked to me about, you know, some of the issues that need to be dealt with and looked at and examined, researched. So he was the big draw. But, you know, trying to sort out the problem of evil, and, and I think probably starting out with, you know, with the the one Enoch book that I did on the origin of evil spirits, that was the starting point, because that's, to, to be honest, at the time, it seemed like the easiest path versus trying to deal with the Satan figure right off the bat. But, you know, so working with those pseudepigraphal texts, uh, Enoch, Jubilees, and Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, and so forth, they got me kind of going towards or going through the evil spirits and, you know, they are so connected, mixed in with this whole heavenly being uh, category of, of creatures in the created world. And I think from there, you know, the next step forward, which people tried to tell me I shouldn't, but I did anyway, was trying to follow that same reception tradition for the Satan figure and where where he emerged and where he is throughout the literature from the ancient Near East is, was one of my was my starting point in the latest book, and then through the Hebrew Bible, through the Second Temple period, through the New Testament, and then went into about the third, fourth century of the early Church Fathers and stopped there because I didn't want to go and I'll leave that part to someone else if they want to to do it. But I think you know trying to understand the heavenly realm um, and the variety of beings that inhabit that realm is one of the key issues in trying to understand the problem of evil and why we live in a world that's so full of evil. Okay, so let's let's kind of cut this in a couple of different ways. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the fact that when you move from the Hebrew Bible, and we're going to leave kind of the book of Daniel to the side for a moment, when we move from the Hebrew Bible, moving into the the world of, you know, early Judaism, ancient Judaism, towards the Hellenistic and Roman period, we begin to find this proliferation of angelic beings. And of course, you know, Daniel fits within that milieu of this development. Right. What do you attribute this growth where from what we find in the Hebrew Bible, which is not nearly as developed where, you know, as you know, we get these figures that have names and titles and we see a lot more of them coming within ancient Judaism. What do you see as the cause of that movement? Well, I think one of the the main things is, like, like you said, I mean, the starting point is in the Hebrew Bible, and, you know, you have general, it's kind of more generalized there as who these figures are. But I think the point that takes it forward from the Jewish scriptures of, of the Hebrew Bible into the Second Temple period, I think one of the primary causes for you know this kind of 
I guess, explosion of angelic, I'm going to go over that word here in a second, but of these angelic heavenly figures um, in the second temple period, like you said, you know, we start to have names for them, but, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, it's more general. They're malachim, you know, they're mm-hmm. they're messengers. And then we also have, you know, the term b'nei ha'elohim, which show up in Job, which, of course, is probably written during the post-exilic period and post pre, the post-Babylonian exilic period. Um, so we have these names here, but I think one of the primary issues what, that I've come across in working with the origin of evil spirits and at the same time working through the Satan book, and the reason that these angelic beings become so prolific or in, during the Second Temple period is trying to separate God from some of the evil or bad things, I suppose, that's going on within Israel and within the, the world that surrounds Israel, where it seems like the authors of these texts are trying to make that separation. So where before we had these angelic be- heavenly beings who were part of a divine council in the Hebrew Bible texts, pre-Babylon exile, they were kind of, for lack of a better term, minor deities within that realm. And I think when they went into the Babylonian exile, they came up a against the Babylonian polytheism, the Persian polytheism. And I think that kind of drove them to move away from that concept of these minor deities. And all of a sudden we have these heavenly beings or what we call angels um, who are operating under, still operating under God's authority, but doing the roles that were often attributed to God in the Hebrew Bible. So now these angelic beings are doing the punishing, they're doing the correcting, they're doing the testing of individuals. That being one of the major ones would be the Satan figure and testing humanity's faith and trust in God. Um, but I think that for me, in a way, and probably would get a lot of pushback on, on some of this, but that they're, the authors are trying to make that separation between Yahweh and evil. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden we have these former minor deities who are probably doing the same exact thing. But, you know, the authors wanted that, wanted to try to make that separation from the polytheistic, henotheistic Israelite religion and the Babylonian religion to moving towards, and so it takes a long time to get there, moving towards that monotheistic religion that we now is, know is so prominent within Judaism and mm-hmm. was becoming prominent in the later Second Temple period. So I know that, and this is a, a subject filled with landmines, but... Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I but appreciate that. Not, not a problem. Well, and, and the, 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 reason, the reason being, of course, is because when you start talking about the influence of Persian religion upon Judaism we're up against a problem where the sources of Persian religion are late. But I do think that there are capabilities of accessing those materials um, in a responsible manner to looking at the developments that we see coming out of the Persian period into the Hellenistic period within Judaism. Do you see that 
kind of Persian Zoroastrian ideas are influencing some of these developments? Or would you say it's more kind of something Babylonian um, or just more just a general, we're trying to keep God good and therefore separate him from the possibility of evil? Well, I think yes to all of those, to be honest. Okay. But I I think one of the primary influences that we see, and we definitely see it in the Qumran scrolls, is the dualism that despite the late texts of of Persian Zoroastrianism, um, we know that that was one of the dominant features of that religion while Israel was being exposed to that in the exile. So I think that dualism carries over into the Second Temple texts in early Judaism a great deal. And I, I think you, you're very much aware of that. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a common, it's never one thing that results in this major shift of theological worldview within a religion. And I think it's a combination of the influence of Zoroastrian dualism, you know, and the separation, the separation within the cosmos of the good and evil, you know, this cosmic dualism, you have the anthropological dualism, and those two issues come into play a great deal in the Second Temple period. But at the same time, I think the authors, because of the influence of the Babylonian polytheism, I think we're seeing they're, they're at the same time this the influence of this dualism, but also at the same time they're trying to separate God, where God was responsible for everything in the Babylonian, the God of the Babylonians, and let's put it that way, was responsible for everything in the world. Where you kind of see that going on in the Hebrew Bible too, although he was still using other heavenly beings to perform some tasks, but all of a sudden you get into the second temple period and it seems like all the tasks that God was doing in the Hebrew Bible are now being performed or he's sending these messengers or heavenly beings out to do the tasks that he normally would have done himself. So I think that, I think it's a combination of the the three issues that you mentioned, uh, turning away from henotheism towards monotheism, the Babylonian polytheism influence. And, but then also one of the, I think one of the major ones is the dualism that we see in the in the Persian religion of Zoroastrianism, even though, like you said, the, the texts are late, but I think the evidence is there that that influence, where it's lacking in the Hebrew Bible, put pre-exilic, when you get to the post-exilic period, then you see that dualism starting to creep into the text, whether it be cosmological or anthropological in that sense. Well, in a moment, I want to kind of drill down on, you know, some of these angelic figures and talk a bit about uh, the Satan figure. But before we do that, you mentioned several times this question of the origin of evil. And could you speak a little bit? Because as you know, I mean, within Judaism, you have different explanations for the origin of evil. And it's almost like you you find two different streams of thought, right? That one is saying that evil is more originating within the human being. Mm-hmm. 
And then the other stream of thought is saying, no, it's more external. Yeah. And and it's a force that is working on humanity. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about those two kind of different origins for evil and how that kind of plays out within the Second Temple period literature? Well, thanks for throwing that grenade at me. I appreciate that. <laughs> Well, that's why we bring you on the on the podcast, Archie. Just you know. Anyway, yeah. Well, I think what you mentioned there, you have the external and the internal, and I think that's the influence of that is partly due to the dualism issue that we we just mentioned. You know, as you know, the the external forces, so to speak, seem to have originated in one Enoch in the Book of Watchers, and the whole issue there concerning Genesis six two, which you're aware of, and I think probably most of your listeners are, where the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, who are angelic heavenly beings, came down to earth, rebelled, according to the one Enoch text, although that's not really there in the Genesis text. And they create these offspring who are called giants. And, and of course, humanity's crying out to God going to the intermediaries and that's one of the things that we see in, in the second temple period that the angelic beings particularly the um, archangels become these intermediaries where humanity speaks through them to God and God responds back through them, these archangels to perform what he wants to have done so humanity is crying out for God to come and help them and of course this is where the flood comes from, destroys the physical giants, but their spirits survive. So now the world is now inhabited. The world of Second Temple Judaism is now inhabited by these evil spirits that came out of these hybrid beings that, the, who were part heavenly being and part human. So they're kind of this hybrid mix. And because they were once in physical flesh, we think that that's why their spirits, these evil spirits, sought to possess human bodies that we see in the New Testament. And part of, you know, big part of Jesus's ministry was exercising these demons, these evil spirits from the human hosts, so to speak. But then we have the other side of the coin that you mentioned is human responsibility. So there's really two streams of thought that are running through Judaism, probably more than that, but the two main ones would be, the, like you said, the external force, and then we have the internal force. And there's kind of two substreams in that, where we have in the scrolls, we have the, the treatise of the two spirits, where we're told that God created in humans two spirits, one Yetzirah, one Yetzir Tov. So you have one that's influenced the good for the person to go towards God and the good of God and Torah. And then we have the influence of the Yetzirah, which is the influence, the inclination to do evil. So the human, this anthropological dualism, internal battle that humans can have of, you know, it's probably Paul's idea of spirit and flesh, you know, that dichotomy that he has in the New Testament. So we have this battle going on within the humans and there are there are external forces. You have these evil spirits and the major evil figures that come into play in the schools, Belial, Satana, Beliar, Mastama, and so forth. Those those are external kind of so called leaders of 
of the evil side of things. But then you have God's good angels. You know, you have Michael and Gabriel and you have Raphael and Uriel and numerous other angels, like you said earlier, they're being named, which was never done in the Hebrew Bible. They were not naming angels in the Hebrew Bible, but all of a sudden the writers are giving names to these angels. Primarily, I think it's related to the task they perform. So, you know, God's name is always part of it, but they're also part of their name is about the function that do that they do. So you have these good angels external to humanity. You have the evil spirits that are external to humanity. But within humanity themselves, there's these two spirits that the person has to battle with to decide good or evil. But then you have Philo of Alexandria, who's a Jewish philosopher in the first century who would have been living at the same time Jesus was alive. He puts all the blame of evil on human responsibility that when we are born as humans, we are come down to earth and we must battle with the vices and virtues. And depending on, and it's kind of, it, it almost kind of mirrors the two spirit thing that's going on in the Qumran scrolls and the, the New Testament where, you know, humanity has to battle to get back out of the evil torrents that they're trapped in. And if they focus on God and on Torah, then they at some point come out of the evil of the world and return back to God. But he saw it primarily as an issue of evil was human responsibility and that humans, when they take responsibility for evil, they can stop evil in their personal lives. But that takes the pursuit of God and the pursuit of Torah in Philo's mind. So you've got that kind of three-pronged concept of evil, the problem of evil. Well, would you say then, and I think you already alluded to this, especially those streams of thought that will see evil as something that externally acts on humanity, you know, kind of the devil made me do it type of idea. That <laughs> kind of, they, they find the center, if you will, of that thought within the Genesis 6 and the story of the, the sons of God and the, and the daughters of, uh, of men. But those that look more towards the internal, you know, that this is something that is internally inside of me, and like you said, it's it becomes a struggle of, you know, aligning myself with God and the Torah and his commandments, that this is, you know, finding more its scriptural base and by yes. know, within the Hebrew Bible within Genesis three. Yes. Kind of more the so we get kind of this contrast between Adam and Enoch kind of in the traditions. Right. Would, would you would you agree with that? Uh yeah, definitely. I think that's that and that kind of shows up in the early church fathers too. And talk about that right now. But um, yeah, I think that, that you have those two streams, the Adamic nature of evil and sin, and then you have the Enochic side of evil with uh, evil spirits that are now inhabiting the world and people have to battle with it. But I think it, you know, it does, just doesn't stop there in the Second Temple period, because the New Testament is very much a Second Temple period document. But there, Paul, as a Pharisaic Jew, you know, raised in Judaism, raised in Torah, knows Torah. He's picking up on that same dualism too, where we as humans battle with internally with, you know, making the right choices, choosing spirit over flesh. And I think the Anarchic influence seems to be more in power during the Second Temple and the first century 
CE period than what the Adamic uh, story is where, you know, because as you know, you get the garden scene, Adam falls, and that's pretty much the end of that story until you get to, there's a, a hint of it in the wisdom of Solomon where it's barely mentioned, but then you don't see this Adamic fall or the fall of Satan caused by Adam until the early second century in the life of Adam and Eve. So the Enochic world of evil kind of takes over the Jewish worldview with the exception, of course, of Philo, who doesn't think that evil spirits actually exist. So, Well, yeah, and I, I think that, you know, depending on how you treat the composition of the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, you actually find kind of a yeah. hybrid there, right? So, I mean, y- yep. where on the one hand, you've got this very much this this sense of the internal struggle against evil and, and the role of the commandments and obedience to the commandments and loving God yep. and loving neighbor and that kind of thing in terms yep. of bringing you in line with that. But th- at the same time, you also have the influence and the threat of those external spirits. And um, I think you probably find a bit also with Paul. Yeah. And I think that the other thing that I would say with Paul is I absolutely agree that the flesh spirit dualism that we see there is very reminiscent of what we find in the scrolls. And as you know, um, in the scrolls, particularly in the Thanksgiving hymns, the hymnist sees himself and humanity as created as nothing more than these vessels of flesh and clay and and so forth that are conceived in impurity or are given birth in impurity. But yet when the spirit that God puts in them, that's what animates them and that's what elevates them. And it's very interesting that you don't find um, much talk in the, in, you know, the sectarian scrolls about, the creation of man. I mean, one thing you don't find, of course, yeah. is the the notion of all humans being created in God's image within the sectarian scrolls. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked then a bit about the origin of evil or the different ideas of the origin of evil. How do you see this manifesting itself out within these angelic, demonic hosts that begin to also develop? And you have already mentioned, you know, the naming of, you know, that that is often ascribed to um, one or some of them is like Satan, Mastema, Belial, Beliar. What's kind of the trajectory of both, you know, developing these kinds of figures, but then also what's their purview? I think that's a, it's important for our listeners to recognize that the way that we ultimately get kind of the devil within later Christian tradition is not the same thing as what we're talking about within the Second Temple Period Jewish text. If you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast, I want to tell you quickly about another great and affordable resource that we offer to help deepen your study and understanding of the Bible. The Windows into the Bible Book Club and Bible Study is a virtual, on-demand book club and Bible study like no other. Each month, the Book Club and Bible Study reads a book chosen specifically to enhance your understanding of the world of the Bible. And that book is paired with a digital Bible study 
It's all recorded and saved so that you can make progress no matter when you begin. For just $10 a month, every member of the book club and Bible study receives a Bible study, notes and videos delivered to your inbox three times a week, a members only Facebook group for discussion and more resources, two live virtual discussions with the book club each month led by that month's expert or author. All materials are available on demand so you can read and learn at your own pace. This is just the low stress, no fuss Bible study and book club that you've been looking for. It's designed to deepen your study and understanding of the Bible for just $10 a month. Go to WITBUniversity.com to join today. That's WITBUniversity.com. See you there. No, and that's absolutely correct. And that's something I try to show in, in the book that's coming out here for too long. But let's go back a little bit into the Hebrew Bible and talk a little bit about the development. Because, you know, the Satan figure basically is pretty much absent from the Hebrew Bible. You know, you have a few times where the name's mentioned, but it's not necessarily, certainly not the figure that we see in in evangelical Christianity today. Definitely not the same figure, you know, and then you also have to talk about the dating of the text because, you know, his primary appearance comes in the book of Job in chapters one and two, where he goes out to test Job because God says, well, what about my servant Job? So he, you know, goes off and I think everybody knows that story. But Job is most likely a second temple written during the second temple period where everybody used to think that Job was one like one of the first books ever written in the Jewish scriptures, which not the case. So then we get into the second temple period and the idea of this of Satan is kind of as this leader of the evil spirits, but he himself is not really there. He's been kind of shoved to the side for now for whatever appearance he had in Job and so forth. When we move into the the other texts, like uh, like you mentioned, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, the Qumran Scrolls, and some other uh, pseudepigrapha, that there's new names pop up. And I think you cannot, you can look at it one way, and this, of course, this is the big debate in scholarship, which I try to deal with in the book, but, you know, are they all the same figure? Is Satan... Beliar, Belial, Mastama, the angel of darkness. Are these all the same figures, the same figure, sorry, or are they different figures kind of performing similar tasks? Because remember, if you think about what heavenly beings were during this period, they had specific tasks to perform. You know, there's a lot of argument that Satan, his task was as to be the adversary of humanity or the kind of he shows up in Zechariah as this accuser of humanity so that was his task but then you also have the book of Enoch telling us that there are multiple Satans there's not just a single one so the question could be you know are all these beings the same being or are there multiple figures who are leading uh, a group of evil spirits or whatever all trying to test and try humanity and then when you move into the New Testament, all of a sudden, he's back. <laughs> you know, the Satan figure all of a sudden just 
comes right back into the scene. He becomes the adversary, still the adversary of humanity, but he also is one who is still performing that testing and trying. And I, I, I would argue that he that's his task when we see the, the wilderness trial of Jesus in the Gospels that, right. you know, we see there the Holy Spirit dr- basically drives Jesus into the wilderness. And who's there waiting for him? The Satan figure to test him and try him for whatever reasons. We don't know for sure because the text doesn't really tell us. My thought is that he's testing to see whether he's not he's up to the task of being the Messiah, so to speak. But that, of course, would get a lot of argument. And then, you know, it's not till you get to the book of Revelation where all of a sudden the author of Revelation starts putting these pieces together of Satan, the serpent, the great dragon, which are all hinting back to Genesis in the garden scene, but there's no mention of the garden there in that text. So part of the issue is the chronology of, of Revelation. You know, we've got Jesus has ascended to heaven, and then in chapter 12 of Revelation is where we have this great battle between Michael and the Satan figure, which is reminiscent of the life of Adam and Eve in the second century. So... You know, when did this actually happen? Is this a pre-flood event that Genesis text doesn't talk about? Or is this something in the end times and the eschaton that's yet to happen with a final day where God says, okay, Satan, your task is over, you're done, and Satan's not really willing to give up that power. So, but there's a lot of ways you can interpret the revelation being an apocalyptic text. But I think the, the question is, through this period, is there one single evil figure ruling over all these evil spirits that are roaming the earth. And I think it's hard to put the finger on that, that to say that, yes, there absolutely is only one. And what is this task? It appears from the text that he is still operating under the sovereignty of God and the tasks that he's performing. You know, there's several examples in the New Testament where Jesus says to Peter and the disciples that Satan is asked to test you, to sift you as wheat. So there we have Satan having to go to God and ask permission to test and try the disciples. So there's some really interesting stuff going on there as to what exactly his role is. Of course, there's also questionable texts that seem to make make it clear that he's an adversary of God, but... If you're an adversary of humanity and who are made in the image of God, then the, the likely connection to making him an adversary of God would just follow suit. Right. So what would you see as kind of the, when we look at the Second Temple period sources for a moment, and let's let's kind of think of them in terms of, you know, the Enochic corpus and the other pseudepigrapha, like you said, like Jubilees and so forth. We have the scrolls, we have the New Testament. What do you see are the similarities and differences as it relates to this, let's just call him the Satan figure. I know that different names get applied in different texts to a figure or like you just said, is this one guy or is this a bunch of them? But yeah. what do you see are the, the consistencies across and the differences when they're when they're idealizing or talking about these wicked or evil adversaries of humanity and and potentially God? Yeah, that's the big question. 
part of the problem is the variety of texts that we're talking about and the variety of purposes of the text that we're talking about. But the figure, the consistency of the figure, the Satan figure throughout these, let's just pick it up from Babylon forward, is that his job is, I mean, we're, we're told, let's go to, you mentioned Jubilees there. Here's a good starting point. In Jubilees 10, Noah cries out to God, because the evil spirits from the Anarchic tradition are harassing his grandchildren and he's afraid that they're all going to go off and join the evil realm, so to speak. And God says, okay, I'll lock all these spirits up with their fathers, the watchers who have fallen and until the day of judgment. And then all of a sudden we have this Mastama figure who is related to the Satan figure in Jubilees. But he has that same consistent testing and trying like we see in the book of Job. He tests and he wants to test and try Abraham during the Akedah right. with Isaac. So it's very similar issue going there in chapter 17 in Jubilees. So Masaba comes to God and says, um, look, I need some of these spirits to perform the tasks that I have of testing in humanity because you know all of humanity is evil and corrupt. So that's the mindset that this figure has, whether Mastama is Satan or Mastama is another figure like Satan alongside Belial and Beliar and so forth. But it seems the consistency is that he thinks humanity is corrupt and God shouldn't be putting so much love and faith in them to do his will and purpose. So his job as an officer of the heavenly council is to go out and test and try individuals. So, you know, in Job, we see him going to and fro throughout the earth to test and try humanity. And that seems to be the consistent theme that runs through Second Temple literature, the New Testament, and the early, early church fathers, the apologists, are looking at him in the same way for different reasons. But they're looking at his purpose is the same in the very early church fathers, the apologists. Um, so that's the consistency of him there. But then you also have some contrasting things where, you know, there's there's some texts that talk about he is, seems to be in, like some of the scrolls, when you get to Beliar in particular, they seem to hint more at that he is directly opposed to God right. rather than being wanted to test humanity so in there it's kind of you really have to work through that to, to get to that point to see that he is opposed to god but at the same time it could be that he's just opposed to humanity who are in in the image of god so you get some contrast in the scrolls about this figure in relation to his job to test humanity or or his direct opposition to god but to be honest the majority of the time when we start from the post-Babylonian period, this figure, and you even see the figure in the some of the pre-Babylonian Hebrew texts, that, that is, his task is to test humanity. And that seems to be consistent running all the way through the text with some minor variation. And like in the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, there seemed to be some hint in some of those texts, but that you know, could be due to Christian interpolation because we, you know, we know that they're not purely Jewish right. texts; that they're Christians 
added some material to that. So that addition could be part of that because, you know, you're getting to a point where you have this cosmic battle going on between Satan and God in later Christianity. So some of that influence could be back, be seen in some of those Testament texts, but it seems consistent across the board, in my mind anyway, with some variation that he is out to trip humanity up. And you know, in the Damascus document, chapter 16, we're told that if a person turns to Torah and turns to God, then Beliar, if that's another Satan figure or the Satan figure, must flee and the person is left alone at that point. And you can kind of see that in the Testament of Jesus, too. So every attack that Satan brings upon Jesus in the Testament of the Wilderness, what does Jesus respond with? Torah. Right. Comes right back with the word. And we're told at the end of the trial, Satan had to flee or fled for perhaps another day. So that seems to be kind of consistent throughout the text, whether it be Second Temple or New Testament and like I said, in some of the apologists in the early church period. So, Well, you know, you, you have interesting parallels with the temptation of Jesus in the Gospels in rabbinic texts. Yes. Um, where, you know, kind of building upon what we find in Jubilees with Mastema um, yep. testing Abraham with the binding of Isaac, that gets expanded in rabbinic texts where Abraham and Satan are dialoguing each other with each other, quoting scripture back and forth at each other, like two good rabbis, right? It's, it's, it's like the, you know, it's exactly yeah. <laughs> like what you find in the temptation in the wilderness, you know, that, that, yeah. that Satan yeah. is, uh, you know, he also studied at, uh, at a yeshiva or something like this, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, True. <laughs> Let me ask another kind of a, a different question here, because we, I, I want to start going into an area that you touched on, and I, I know another area of your expertise in terms of the realm of the literary genre of apocalypse, but keeping with this theme of the, the Satan figure, of course, within Jewish texts, we have these eschatological opponents, some of which are human. I mean, of course, in later Christian yeah. tradition, you know, we get the title Antichrist and things like this, right? But yep. do you find within the Jewish text that we're talking about a connection between these human eschatological opponents of whether that's God or the people of God and between this figure and the Satan figure? Not that they're one and the same, but is there? do you ever see them being connected together in the fact that they're kind of serving, they're playing on the same side, so to say? Well, that's a really good question. One of the bigger issues, and you know this, is, is how to interpret apocalyptic texts. Right. Because of the language that shows up in them, you know, very visionary, you know, a lot of people would like to take them literally. You know, they read the book of Revelation alongside the morning newspaper, trying to figure out who's who and, and all that. So, you know, when you mention figures like the Antichrist or Antichrists, so to speak, or, you know, all the beasts that are in Revelation, as, you know, probably the, that's probably the most popular apocalyptic 
texts in the Christian world, at least, that's most well known, maybe not so popular, but, you know, but you've got a little apocalyptic stories throughout the New Testament where you have these figures pop up, like you said, but whose side are they on? That's the question is, what is the author of the, let's say, Thessalonian text, for instance, does he see this as a human or is it some kind of a, this antichrist group? back to that. Mm -hmm. Is he a human or is he some kind of a spiritual influence on the world, so to speak? You know, some people will argue that it's a specific religion, which I'm not going to get into here. But so is he siding with Satan? That's the question you're asking. I'm not so sure that's the case. And maybe the case in some of the apocalyptic stuff or texts, but I'm not so sure because of the nature of, of apocalypses, you know, we're Sometimes we get these beasts and the Satan figure being used to identify governments like Rome or Babylon or whoever. So are these apocalyptic figures that you mentioned, are they operating alongside the Satan, this heavenly figure, or are they basically just a part of the whole battle that's going on in in the earthly realm between governments and in the early church that we see. I mean, it's really hard to, to pinpoint anything like that. I think we get to the point, though, where one thing you could probably say is that the Satan figure or figures are influencing these earthly governments or kingdoms or whatever, you know, Paul mentions principalities and powers and so forth. So, you know, is Satan influencing them to help trip up humanity? I don't know the lack lack of a better term, but I think tripping up humanity so that they can't follow after God and they keep sinning and so forth. So the possibility, yeah, they can be working on the same side as the Satan figure or figures, But at the same time, I think depending on the text, the apocalyptic text, you know, are they, are we really talking about uh, spiritual beings or are we talking about governments of the day and their oppression of Christians and Christianity in general? It's just, it's hard to pinpoint the answer to that question because it could be both. And that's the problem with apocalyptic texts is you can't read them literally, but at the same time, there's a, there's enough influence in them or enough evidence in them, sorry, that would point to a connection between these figures and the larger leader of the evil spirits or evil in the world figure, particularly in later, when you get into later apocalypses, right. that that might be the case. But it's a, it's a very difficult question. It, probably do someone well to do a dissertation on it, but (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, you mentioning apocalypses and, and, and so forth. Um, Because obviously in our world that we're living in today, um, there's two main streams of reading apocalypses. You've already alluded to one where it's, you know, you read the apocalypse with, you know, in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and you're constantly trying to identify this as that. Right. There's also the other trend that tends towards almost a purely literary 
reading of an apocalypse where everything is basically extrapolated into a literary realm. Yeah. And I'm curious to to kind of get your thoughts on it. I think both, I mean, from my standpoint, at least in terms of reading Jewish apocalypses, I, I think both are incorrect. But I'm just curious what your thoughts would be in terms of how we should approach this genre, which also has variants in it, right? I mean, there's not just one style, there's few styles of, of of apocalypses, but yeah. Let's, so let's just talk about like historical apocalypses. Okay. We'll leave the, the more speculative stuff like, you know, the, you know, the astronomical book of Enoch, which, you know, if you ever have insomnia <laughs> at night, just read that and it's like a cure. Right. But so, so let's talk yeah. about like kind of the historical apocalypses, like what we have in Daniel and uh, fourth Ezra and, and, and I think probably you could argue the book of Revelation would fit into that category. How would yeah. you recommend a responsible way of beginning to approach this genre? <laughs> you keep throwing hand grenades at me, Mark. <laughs> well, you're the one that decides to study Satan and apocalypses, man. Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, well, this is something that I always tell my students in reading any of this literature, never mind apocalypses, reading pseudepigrapho, is be very careful. You know, don't go at it as if it's, you know, the absolute end of all ends. This is it. This is how you have to interpret it. I think, you know, you mentioned Daniel and 4th Ezra and, of course, Revelation. I think what you should not do is what you said at the beginning of your question. There's read it next to next to your newspaper, you know, because that's not what they're there for. The texts are there to help the community navigate where they are in their world. And I think that's how the, the best approach to reading those texts. But the question is, who's who, right? right. You know, you particularly with Revelation. I mean, Revelation is such a crazy book but there is a, a really good book out there reading revelation responsibly that i read several years ago uh, forgive me but i can't remember the author but the title is reading revelation responsibly so it kind of gives you an idea of you know the approach of going into the book is not to look for those kind of connections but just to read it with an understanding of this is the world that the early church was trying to survive in and what do these things mean and historically what did the you know temple prostitutes or you know who were the proselytizers in revelation or um and trying to figure out what who were the enemies of the early church and i think that's what the the author of Revelation is is trying to get across like here's how you have to survive by doing the following after God of course and it goes all the way back to you know what we talked about earlier about following God and serving God and following Torah or the word of God probably what they were calling it by then but um, then you go to the you know the Daniel text which you know you're you've got the scene by the river where if the two main archangels show up, you know, one's off battling principalities and powers, and what are those? You know, what what angel 
Is he out there battling other spiritual powers? Or should we take that as the battle on the ground, so to speak, between the Hellenists and the followers of God, the righteous, who are trying to follow after God? Is that what's going on there? Is Michael trying to help the righteous battle these Hellenists who are trying to take over Jerusalem, trying to take over the temple, trying to take over Judaism, so to speak? So I think... You know, you have to approach them with caution, which you know that, uh, but trying to match them up with um, who's who. But I think the thing is to try to figure out what the author's trying to tell his community. You know, here's how we survive. Right. You know, here's who our enemies are, and here's who you have to watch out for. But at the same time, the author's telling you that God is there to help. You know, he hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you alone. And I think, you know, that those are the kind of things when you're reading an apocalypse, you want to try to identify the, oh, so here's where God is in the midst of this. And here's the enemies of God. Here's the enemies of the early church. Here's the enemies of Daniel's community. Here's the enemies of Ezra's community, the author of Fourth Ezra's community. So I think it doesn't hurt to try to figure that out, but trying to identify them with specific individuals. I mean, I don't know how helpful that is to us today. But I think, you know, Revelation can tell us the same story can be brought forward into the 21st century for the Christians. Who are your enemies and who do you have to watch out for? And where is God in the, in the midst of all this? And I think that's how you try to approach these texts. Well, I guess the thing that for me I find problematic within certain attempts to read, let, let's let's leave aside the 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 read revelation in one hand and the with the newspaper in the other okay you know yeah but but i think the problem that i have and you know listeners to the podcast will will know that for me i think our responsibility reading the bible is whether or not we share the worldview of a particular biblical text yep we have to be very careful not to let our worldview influence how we read it now i mean that's incredibly hard and it and it and it's not we can never do it entirely but i one of the things that bothers me as i as i look at you know some current trends in in terms of scholarship and revelation you know part of what we find with historical apocalypses the the development of the genre is that these people see that the world is kind of going to hell in a handbasket yeah and they're, you know, part of the determinism, particularly the determinism of the end, becomes very powerful for them because it's kind of like, okay, we get that life really sucks right now and whatever that means, right? I mean, right. they perceive themselves as persecuted at some level. But there is going to come a moment where the end is going to happen and the, the end is near. And for them, you know, because they look at it with, you know, the seen and the unseen world. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the things that I, I think in the same way that we misread Revelation when we pick up the the paper and, you know, as a, as a kid growing up in the 80s, I don't know how many, you know, preachers I heard try and, you know, talk about the, the birthmark mark with Mikhail Gorbachev as being the mark of the beast and things like that, right? I mean, yeah. no, 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 yep. don't do that. <laughs> but I, But at the same time, I think that, when we try and approach Revelation with a very modernist view, absolutely, we also yeah. are going to equally misread it 
because this was as best as we can. Again, we may come to the, at the end of the day and say, I, re- I reject the worldview of the author and his initial readers. But to come in and, and kind of try and make a modernist argument, to me at least, I see that as just as unfounded where I'm ignoring the idea of the end. And the fact is like Michael Stone says that the worse that situations were perceived by the community, the more they saw that it had to be dealt with outside of time. And I, yeah. and, and this is one of the things that I find that's kind of, I'm seeing more and more with how people are trying to approach revelation is, you know, reading it through, you know, power structures and the oppressed and the oppressor and trying to put a yeah. very modernist spin on it. When to me, I'm not saying that, you know, the reason why the powers get consumed is ultimately because they're opposed to the God of Israel. Right. Would you agree with me on that or? Absolutely. I think, I, I think what you said earlier there is trying to lay our worldview or our understanding of things. It's not just on apocalypse, right. but people try to do this with basically every biblical text they come across the anachronistic reading of a particular text just to fit their worldview. Right. And it's just, it's not the approach to take, but yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that too many people want to ignore the historical aspects of the apocalypses and what was going on, how the community was trying to deal with things. And they always want to bring it into their own world and try to figure it out. And it just doesn't work because, you know, we're, we're so far removed from that time period and from that author's world and from that community that, you know, we can only do the best right. trying to figure out what, what the author's talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah. We could continue to uh, talk <laughs> on, on these topics for hours and days, but yes. I want to thank Dr. Archie Wright for being our guest today on the podcast. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the WITB podcast. You can comment and send us questions, which we will answer on a future episode. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Turnage. We'll see you next time. We hope you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you are, help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. This helps the show get seen and heard by even more people looking to learn about the world of the Bible. And by subscribing, you make sure new episodes to the podcast show up in your feed as soon as they go live. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe. And most of all, keep listening. Mark, one of the reasons I wanted to start the Windows into the Bible podcast was to show how, by accessing the world of the Bible, we can better understand the words of the Bible. This philosophy has been at the core of my entire career. 
because I know from firsthand experience how knowing the world of the Bible completely transforms your understanding and study of the Bible. But nothing, not even a podcast, transforms how you read the Bible like actually going to the land of the Bible in person to experience it for yourself. Offering the finest on-site expert-led trips and experiences to the world of the Bible, Biblical Expeditions has taken thousands of Bible readers and travelers from around the world to the lands of the Bible with trips to Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Italy, and Egypt. If you are a church leader and are interested in organizing a trip for your church or interested in joining a group to the lands of the Bible, reach out and the Biblical Expeditions team can make that happen. Go to biblical-expeditions.com to learn more about Biblical Expeditions and upcoming trips and learn how you can finally transform your study of the Bible by actually going to the land of the Bible on a life-changing trip. That's biblical-expeditions.com. We use the world of the Bible to transform how you read the words of the Bible. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>